0: I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black best To the playhouse of fortune To take the bright silver And gold you have taken From somebody else we go riding in the foggy midnight. You my good pony. You're listening to episode 741 of Unwelcome Guests Solving 9 11, part 1. I'm Robin Upton, and we're going to spend the whole show this week on an audiobook. This is a book by Chris Bullin, Solving 9 11. And it's read by the author. Chapter 1. 9-11 through the eyes of an American skeptic. In December 2001, just three months after the attacks in New York, Eckhart Wirthbach, the former president of Germany's intelligence service, meeting with Christopher Bolin in Germany, said, "...the deathly precision and magnitude of planning behind the 9-11 attacks would have needed years of planning." Such a sophisticated operation would require the fixed frame of a state intelligence organization, something not found in a loose group of terrorists like the ones allegedly led by Mohammed Atta while he studied in Hamburg. Many people would have been involved in the planning of such an operation. The absence of leaks is further indication that the attacks were state-organized actions. As a journalist with an independent weekly newspaper based in Washington, D.C., I became caught up in the events of 9-11, from the minute it happened, and was able to write freely about the terror attacks that were exploited to start the pre-planned War on Terror. From my position as a skeptic of the unproven official version, I have examined the facts and evidence since the day it happened, and have concluded that the U.S. government and controlled media have engaged in a conspiracy to deceive the world about what really happened on that terrible day. The Dream the early morning hours of September 11, 2001 found me with my family driving through New York City en route to Washington, D.C. after a weekend trip to Stowe, Vermont. We had visited the Trap family lodge and gotten a late start from Stowe on Monday afternoon. By the time we reached New York City, our two small children were fast asleep in the back seat of the car. Because the hotels were either full or outrageously expensive, I was left with no choice but to continue driving down the highway when I should have been sleeping. To keep me awake as I drove through New York City, my wife Helia described a vivid dream she had had a week earlier, the night before we had left our home near Chicago. In her dream, we were driving toward a city with a skyline of densely packed skyscrapers when a large airplane flew right at us and plunged into the road about 50 meters in front of our car. She turned and saw the plane emerge from the ground behind us, and another plane coming at us from another angle. This was a strange dream, in which she felt that our family had been under attack. Helia's dream turned out to be an eerie and uncanny premonition of what was to happen in the skies of New York City, less than eight hours later. It was about 3 a.m. in the morning of September 11th, when we finally found an affordable hotel room just inside the state of Maryland on Interstate 95. The kids woke up and jumped on the beds, and then we all fell asleep about a half hour later. I woke up about 8.30 a.m. and went down to the lobby for a cup of coffee. The television was on in the breakfast area, reporting that a plane had struck the north tower of the World Trade Center in Manhattan. I grabbed some pastries and coffee and hurried back to the room and turned the television to the news channel. The children and I went to get more donuts and coffee and were on our way back to the room when the second plane hit the South Tower. Helia had seen it happen live on television. We were shocked by the events and realized that America was under attack. I immediately called my office in Washington, D.C. and told my boss that Kamikaze airplanes had hit the World Trade Center. He thought I was joking. I said I wouldn't joke about such a thing and told him to turn on the radio. I called the office again after the Pentagon was hit and said we would not be coming to Washington, but were heading home to Chicago. Having no idea what would happen next, I thought it would be best to take the country roads and stay away from big cities. We drove through rural Lancaster County, past Amish farmers harvesting a very tall corn crop. I stopped and walked into the fields to ask some of the German-speaking farmers if they knew what had happened in New York City. They said they had not heard anything about it, and carried on working with their horse-drawn harvester. Our route from Pennsylvania to Chicago took us near the site in Shanksville where Flight 93 supposedly crashed, but I had no desire to go to the scene of the disaster. We stopped for lunch in a small town. The diner was full of people, but nobody was talking. The people sat quietly, as if mesmerized, listening to the news on the radio. Indications of Israeli Involvement We listened to the radio as we drove across Pennsylvania. It was a beautiful sunny day with a bright blue sky. About noon, I heard a news report that five Middle Eastern men had been seen in New Jersey, videotaping and celebrating the destruction of the World Trade Center. Most people automatically associate Middle Eastern with Arab. This early news report immediately planted in the public mind the idea that Muslims were behind the terror attacks. This line of thinking quickly became the accepted explanation, and although it remains unproven, became the official version of 911. The first indication that the attack on the World Trade Center was an elaborate false flag operation came with the arrest of the five men on the New Jersey side of the Hudson River. These men, described as Middle Eastern in the first media reports, were later identified as Israelis. A false flag operation is a crime which is designed and carried out so that another party or nation is blamed. The five jubilant Middle Eastern men, who had filmed themselves smiling and celebrating with the burning World Trade Center in the background, were identified as Sivan and Paul Kurtzberg, Oded Elner, Omer Marmari, and Yaron Shmuel. Two of them were actually known to U.S. law enforcement as agents of Israeli intelligence, a fact that was ignored by the media. The Israelis had been observed taking video or photos of themselves with the World Trade Center burning in the background. Sivan Kurzberg told the police that the men had been driving in their van in the immediate vicinity of the towers that morning. He was photographed flicking a lighter with the burning towers behind him. A woman who had observed the jubilant Israelis said she was struck by the expressions on the men's faces. They were like happy, you know, she said. They didn't look shocked to me. I thought it was very strange. When they were arrested, Sivan, the driver of the van, told the police, we are Israeli. We are not your problem. Your problems are our problems. The Palestinians are the problem. The story of the five men celebrating the destruction of the Twin Towers was dropped from the national news when it became known that they were not Arabs or Muslims from the Middle East, but Israelis. The noteworthy fact that these men, who clearly had prior knowledge of the attacks, were in fact Israelis, and that they had been arrested at gunpoint with box cutter knives, multiple passports, and thousands of dollars in cash Driving a van that tested positive for explosives was only reported by Paulo Lima in a local New Jersey newspaper, the Bergen Record, the following day. This important information, however, was completely ignored by the New York Times and the other national mass media outlets based across the river in New York City. I discussed the details with Paulo Lima on the phone, and this important and suppressed story became the subject of my first article about 9-11. I realized then, during the first week after 9-11, that the mainstream news media was ignoring and covering up important information and evidence about the terrorist attacks. There would be, for example, no reporting in the mainstream media of the evidence of Israeli involvement or prior knowledge of the attacks. This was just the beginning of the censorship the media was to impose on the events of 9-11. The possibility that these men could be Israeli intelligence agents involved in a spectacular false flag terror attack was discussed in my article that went to print in American Free Press on September 20, 2001. Months later, Forward, a well-known New York-based Jewish newspaper confirmed that urban moving systems, the Weehawken, New Jersey-based moving company that the men worked for was actually an Israeli intelligence front operation and that at least two of the men, evidently the Kurtzberg brothers, were known agents of Mossad, Israeli military intelligence. Dominic Suter, the owner of the company and a suspect in the terror attacks, was allowed to flee to Israel after the Federal Bureau of Investigation had initially interviewed him, but before they could interrogate him a second time. He has not been extradited to the United States. After being held for 10 weeks, the five Israelis were sent back to Israel on visa violations. Elner, Marmari, and Shmuel appeared on an Israeli television show without the Kurtzberg brothers in November 2001. The three Israelis confessed that their mission had been to document the 9-11 attacks. The fact of the matter is that we come from a country that experiences terror daily, Oded Elner said. Our purpose was to document the event. The Israelis' prior knowledge of the attacks reveals their evident complicity in the murder of some 3,000 people. One would think that such a revealing public admission by a suspect claiming prior knowledge of the terror attack and saying that his purpose was to document the event would be extremely newsworthy information in the United States. Sadly, this was not the case. Rather than discuss the evidence, the mainstream media promoted an unproven version of events in which the blame was assigned to 19 Arabs with ties to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. There were other conspicuous indications of Israeli involvement in 9-11 from the beginning. On the day of the bombings, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli politician from the right-wing Likud party, openly stated that he viewed 9-11 as a positive development in an interview with James Bennett of the New York Times. Quote, Asked tonight what the attack meant for relations between the United States and Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu The former Prime Minister replied, It's very good. Then he edited himself, Well, it's not good, but it will generate immediate sympathy. Netanyahu predicted that the attack would strengthen the bond between our two peoples because we've experienced terror of so many decades, but the United States has now experienced a massive hemorrhaging of terror. The New York Times published Netanyahu's comments in an article entitled, Spilled Blood is Seen as Bond That Draws Two Nations Closer, on September 12, 2001. Journalists who challenge the official version with evidence and facts are marginalized as conspiracy nuts. I have been slandered by the media simply because I have investigated the evidence of Israeli involvement in the terror attacks. The personal attacks against me led to an assault by three heavily armed, unidentified men who assaulted me at my home in August 2006. The names of these men, who turned out to be undercover police, were kept secret for a month. Their assault left me with a fractured right elbow and shocked with 50,000 volts from a police device known as a taser. This outrageous and illegal assault occurred at my home In front of my wife and eight-year-old daughter, I was taken to jail and subsequently charged with resisting arrest and aggravated assault, both misdemeanor charges. In the Chicago system of justice, one is forced to plead guilty and accept the sentence meted out by the judge. I refused to plead guilty, however, and spent nearly one year trying to defend myself against the baseless charges and malicious prosecution. In early June 2007, I was found guilty of both misdemeanors after a seriously flawed four-day trial in which the police were allowed to destroy the video evidence and then openly lied on the stand. My expert witness and evidence were not allowed to be presented by the Cook County Judge Hyman Reibman, a Zionist Jew. Having seen that there was no way to obtain justice in the corrupt court system, I was compelled to leave Chicago with my family before the date of sentencing. It would have been irresponsible for me to allow this criminal system to harm me and my family more than it already had. The Odigo Warnings In the first days and weeks after 9-11, I paid very close attention to the large number of Israeli terror suspects arrested, which was more than 200 by November 2001. I also investigated the published reports that an Israeli text messaging service had been used to warn Israelis of the attacks in New York, hours before they occurred. Many Israelis were evidently forewarned of the attacks through an Israeli instant messaging service called Odigo, This story, which presents the clearest evidence of Israeli prior knowledge of the attacks, was reported only very briefly in the U.S. media and then forgotten. According to the published reports, Israel-based employees of Odigo reported having received warnings of an imminent attack at the World Trade Center hours before the first plane hit the North Tower. Odigo, an Israeli-owned company, had its U.S. headquarters two blocks from the World Trade Center, but the forewarned Odigo employees did not pass the terror warning on to the authorities in New York, an act that would have saved thousands of lives. Two weeks after 9-11, Alex Diamandis, Odigo's vice president, said, The messages said something big was going to happen in a certain amount of time, and it did. Almost to the minute. It was possible that the attack warning was broadcast to other Odigo members, but the company has not received reports of other recipients of the message, Diamandis said. According to a report in the Jerusalem Post, Israel's foreign ministry had collected the names of 4,000 Israelis believed to have been in the areas of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon at the time of the attack yet only one was reported to have died in the Twin Towers. Based on the number provided by the Israeli government and the number of Israelis thought to have been at the World Trade Center at the time of the attacks, it seems evident that most of them got the warning. Odigo, which offers real-time messaging, has a feature called People Finder, which allows a user to send an instant message to a large group based on a common characteristic such as Israeli nationality. PeopleFinder allows Odigo users to search for online buddies with filters like Israeli nationality, while maintaining user privacy at all times. The message was probably also sent in Hebrew. The internet address of the sender, of the warning, was allegedly given to the FBI. Two months later, it was reported that the FBI was still investigating the matter. Since then, there had been no further media reports about the Odigo warning of 9-11. These two news stories about the fake Israeli movers and the Odigo messages, which clearly indicated that some Israelis had very specific prior knowledge of the attacks, were published in American and Israeli newspapers shortly after 9-11, had the recipients of these Odigo instant messages contacted the New York Police Department thousands of lives could have been saved. The question that has not been asked is, why didn't they? Quibono. There were several early indications that Israelis were involved in 9-11 and that it was a spectacular false flag terror attack designed to serve as a casus belli that could be used to drag the United States into the war on terror. Apart from the previously mentioned evidence of Israeli prior knowledge, there were also the incredibly insensitive comments of Netanyahu about 9-11 being very good in his view. Netanyahu, it should be noted, is the author of several books which call for the Western nations to engage in a global war on terror. Since 1986, Netanyahu has urged the United States and Western democracies to take up arms Against the Enemies of Israel in the Name of Fighting Terrorism, which is the title of one of his books. The terrorists that Netanyahu wants the West to wage war on, however, all happen to be the people and states opposed to Israel's illegal occupation of Palestinian land. I approached the 9-11 investigation with a 25-year history of living in and following the events of the Middle East, After many years of traveling in Europe and the Middle East, I obtained a degree in history from the University of California at Santa Cruz in 1992. My academic emphasis was on Palestine and Israel. After the first U.S. war against Iraq, which I was actively opposed to, I spent my final year of university researching the Soviet occupation of the newly liberated Baltic republics and completing my courses at the University of Bergen in Norway. Fate brought me into the proximity of another mass disaster on the morning of September 28, 1994, when I arrived by ship in Sweden and learned that the Baltic ferry named Estonia had sunk during the night with 852 victims lost at sea. My wife's first husband, a famous Estonian singer named Urmas Alender, was among the missing. While it was abundantly clear "...that something much more explosive than a monster wave had sunk the ferry, the Swedish government and media pretended that natural forces had caused the catastrophe. In the process of investigating what happened in the ferry disaster, I came to realize that a modern democratic state like Sweden could actually be complicit in the cover-up of the mass murder of hundreds of its own citizens." In 2000, when I began working as a journalist for the Washington-based Spotlight, I turned my attention to the mysterious 1996 crash of TWA Flight 800 off the coast of New York. I attended the National Transportation Safety Board's presentation of their findings of what had caused the crash of Flight 800 and was appalled at the obvious cover-up. I noticed how the three Jewish members of the board dominated the presentation The two-day event ended with the outrageous dismissal of the testimonies of more than 100 eyewitnesses who had testified to having seen a streaking object hitting the aircraft in flight. This eyewitness evidence was categorically dismissed because, according to the youngest member of the board, based solely on the time of day, all of the 100 witnesses must have been drunk and hallucinating. After the presentation of the NTSB findings, there was no press conference or session allowing for any questions from the media or public. This was clearly another cover-up. I had also studied the Israeli attack on the USS Liberty and had seen how the U.S. government and military had covered up the truth of the Israeli military attack on the unarmed Navy vessel off the coast of Egypt in 1967. With this background, I approached the events of 9-11. Well aware of the history of false flag terror, the overwhelming Zionist influence in government and media, and corrupt official investigations of recent mass disasters, I was skeptical from the start. Evidence of explosions ignored. The administration of George W. Bush rushed the nation and its allies into war in Afghanistan within one month of the 9-11 attacks using the unsolved crime as the casus belli to justify a war of aggression that had been planned long before. The war against the government of Afghanistan, called Operation Enduring Freedom by the government and military, began on October 7, 2001. The week before the war began, I wrote an article about the immense oil and gas reserves of the Caspian Basin and the new Great Game, to gain control of these valuable energy resources. I also wrote several articles about the long-standing business and personal ties between George W. Bush and the Bin Laden family. One month after 9-11, I wrote about how the mass media was ignoring the large number of eyewitness accounts describing explosions at the World Trade Center before the collapse of the Twin Towers and Building 7. Quote, despite reports from numerous eyewitnesses and experts, including news reporters on the scene who heard or saw explosions immediately before the collapse of the World Trade Center, there has been a virtual silence in the mainstream media. I wrote in the article entitled, Some Survivors Say Bombs Exploded Inside World Trade Center. After the airplanes hit the World Trade Center, There were some explosive devices inside the buildings that caused the towers to collapse. Van Romero, an explosives expert and former director of the Energetic Materials Research and Testing Center at New Mexico Tech, told the Albuquerque Journal minutes after the collapses. The collapse of the structures resembled controlled implosions used to demolish old structures and was, quote, too methodical to be a chance result of airplanes colliding with the structures, Romero said. Coming from a man who is an expert in the effects of explosives on structures, Romero's comments carried a lot of weight, in my opinion. Quote, It would be difficult for something from a plane to trigger an event like that, Romero said. If explosions did cause the towers to collapse, it could have been a relatively small amount of explosives placed in strategic points. One of the things terrorist events are noted for is a diversionary attack and secondary device, he said. Then, suddenly 10 days after the attack, without any explanation, Romero did a complete about-face in his analysis of the collapse. Quote, Certainly the fire is what caused the buildings to fail, he told the Albuquerque Journal on September 21, 2001. A friend of mine from Brooklyn told me that he had been standing among a crowd of people on Church Street, about two blocks from the South Tower, when he saw, quote, a number of brief light sources being emitted from inside the building between floors 10 and 15. He saw about six of these brief flashes, accompanied by a crackling sound, immediately before the tower collapsed. Even a veteran 51-year-old firefighter, Louis Caccioli, told People magazine, that he had witnessed explosions in the South Tower. Quote, I was taking firefighters up in the elevator to the 24th floor to get in position to evacuate workers. On the last trip up, a bomb went off. We think there were bombs set in the building. What is most peculiar about the eyewitness reports of explosions was that they were completely ignored by the mainstream news media, even when the reports came from their own reporters on the scene. Stephen Evans of the BBC, for example, was in the South Tower where he witnessed a series of explosions and felt a big explosion from much, much lower. Yet the BBC, like the rest of the mainstream media, failed to investigate or even discuss the evidence of explosions in the towers. How did the editors of the mass media networks in the United States and Britain make the decision not to discuss the evidence of explosions even when the information came from their own reporters on the scene eyewitness reports and images of explosions were broadcast only once and then swept under the carpet it soon became quite clear that the mass media was censoring any discussion of the evidence of explosions in the world trade center within a few weeks i realized that the media and government were working together to deceive the public about what had really happened on 9-11 and that there was a massive conspiracy afoot to promote a false version of events in order to gain public support for a previously planned war policy in the Middle East. The mass media was clearly engaged in a comprehensive propaganda campaign to instill fear in the public. I decided that Europe would probably be a safer and saner place to be, so at the end of November, After the Thanksgiving holiday, we flew to Germany. The Destruction of Evidence In Germany, I had the opportunity to interview Andreas von Bülow in Bonn. Von Bülow is the author of two books about 9-11 and a former member of the Bundestag, the German parliament. While in the government, he served on the parliamentary commission which oversees the three branches of the German secret service. Von Bülow told me that he thought Israel's intelligence service, the Mossad, was behind the 9-11 attacks. These attacks, he said, were carried out to turn public opinion against the Arabs and boost military and security spending. You don't get the higher echelons, von Bülow said, referring to the architectural structure which masterminds such terror attacks. At this level, he said, the organization doing the planning, such as Mossad, is primarily interested in affecting public opinion. The terrorists who actually commit the crimes are what von Bülow calls the working level, such as the 19 Arabs who allegedly hijacked the planes on September 11. The working level is part of the deception, he said. 95% of the work of the intelligence agencies around the world is deception and disinformation, he said, which is widely propagated in the mainstream media, creating an accepted version of events. Journalists don't even raise the simplest questions, he said. Those who differ are labeled as crazy. Eckhart Vertebach, the former president of the Verfassungsschutz, a branch of German intelligence, told me that the deathly precision and the magnitude of planning behind the attacks would have needed years of planning. Such a sophisticated operation, Vertebach said, required the fixed frame of a state intelligence organization, something not found in a loose group of terrorists. Both Vertebach and von Bülow said the lack of a complete blue ribbon investigation with congressional hearings into the events of September 11th was incomprehensible. These men made more sense to me than anyone in the U.S. government or media. As incomprehensible as it might seem, the Bush administration delayed and avoided an official investigation for as long as possible, at least until all the evidence was destroyed. The steel from the World Trade Center was quickly shipped to Asia, where it was melted down. The evidence from the crime scene was being destroyed as quickly as possible. This was clearly criminal, yet the highest authorities in the U.S. government and the Department of Justice. We're allowing it to happen. Molten metal. 9-11 is an unsolved crime, and I have done what I can to solve it using the available evidence. In the summer of 2002, for example, I wrote an article about the seismic data that showed unexplained spikes occurring at the beginning of each collapse. In my research into the removal of the rubble, I learned from one of the contractors and a demolition expert that molten metal had been discovered at the bottom of the rubble pile in the lower basement levels. This molten metal was described to me as molten steel by Peter Tully, president of Tully Construction of Flushing, New York, and Mark Loiseau, president of Controlled Demolition Incorporated of Phoenix, Maryland. The molten steel was found... Three, four, and five weeks later, when the rubble was being removed, Loiseau said, he said molten steel was also found at WTC 7, the 47-story building owned by Larry Silverstein, which collapsed mysteriously in the late afternoon. Loiseau said, If I were to bring the towers down, I would put explosives in the basement to get the weight of the building to help collapse the structure. The molten metal found beneath the rubble was clearly important evidence that could explain how the towers were brought down. Because each tower was held up by 47 huge core columns, there had to be an explanation for what caused these columns to fall. The official explanation that fires had caused the floor trusses to give way failed to explain what happened to the core columns. To explain the extremely quick collapse of the core columns, the seismic spikes and molten metal seem to be very important clues. Stephen E. Jones, a professor of physics at Brigham Young University, BYU, in Utah, contacted me in the summer of 2005 and asked me what I had learned about the discovery of molten metal at the World Trade Center. I told Jones exactly what Peter Tully and Mark Loiseau had said about the discovery of molten iron in the basements of the Twin Towers and Building 7. After studying the reports and photographs of molten metal, Jones had been able to obtain some fragments of the metal. He concluded that the fragments were primarily iron, and possible evidence that thermite had been used to demolish the buildings. Encouraged by his research, I visited Professor Jones on the campus of Brigham Young University in the spring of 2006. From Provo, Utah, I then traveled by train to the University of California at Davis, where I met with Professor Thomas A. Cahill, an expert on airborne particles. Dr. Cahill had conducted a study of the particles contained in the thin bluish smoke that rose from the rubble for nearly four months after 9-11. Cahill's air sampling began on October 2nd and continued until late December 2001 when the last fires were finally extinguished. Asked why it took so long to begin a scientific evaluation of the air contamination that accompanied the destruction of the World Trade Center, Dr. Cahill said he had assumed that there were scores of agencies and scientists monitoring the air quality in New York City after 9-11. I assumed it was happening. I could not believe it was not, Cahill said. The Environmental Protection Agency did nothing. Cahill's work revealed the presence of extremely small metallic aerosols in unprecedented amounts in the plumes coming from the burning World Trade Center rubble. Most of the particles in these plumes were in the categories of ultrafine and nanoparticles from 0.26 to 0.09 microns. The extraordinarily high level of ultrafine aerosols was one of the most unusual aspects of the data, Cahill said. Ultrafine particles require extremely high temperatures, he said, namely the boiling point of the metal. Since the scientific data supports the theory that some form of thermite was used to destroy the towers, the question is how it got onto the 81st floor of the South Tower, where large amounts of molten metal were seen falling before the collapse. The official final report of the fires does not explain what was on the 81st floor, which seems odd because this is the floor leased by Fuji Bank into which the airplane crashed. A former employee of the bank came forward and told me that the bank had reinforced the floor in 1999 to support a very heavy load of computer backup batteries. The whole floor was batteries, he said, huge battery-looking things. They were all black and solid, very heavy things, which had been brought in during the night. They had been put in place during the summer prior to 9-11, he said. But were they really batteries? It's weird, he said. They were never turned on. So, what really was on the 81st floor of the South Tower? What was in these heavy, battery-looking things? Were they batteries, or were they thermite? And is it more than a coincidence that both planes flew directly into secure computer rooms in both towers and that both spectacular explosions showed evidence of thermite-produced white smoke? The cover-up continues. Despite the legal difficulties, slander, criticism, and other setbacks, I have continued to examine the evidence from 9-11 and ask the questions that demand to be answered. The lost lives of the thousands of victims of the terror attacks and the illegal wars that have been waged in the name of 9-11 deserve to be honored with the truth, not a pack of lies pushed by the controlled media onto a gullible public. It would be naive and foolish for us to expect the truth from a government that has been shown to have repeatedly lied to the media and international community in order to accomplish its dubious goals. The truth of 9-11 will certainly not be given to us on a silver platter. It is something we will have to fight for. Chapter 2, The Plains of 9-11 Some day, perhaps, if it's decided that the stories can be told, you will see that the state of Israel has been involved in acts which are a thousand times more dirty than anything going on in Colombia. But these things were decided by the government in cabinet meetings. As long as the government decides to do something, something that the national interest demanded, then it is legitimate. But if an individual wants to do the same thing, it isn't. That's just the way it is. It's very simple. End quote. Lieutenant General Rafael Etan, Israeli Chief of Staff, 1978-1983, from the Columbia Connection, Jerusalem Post, September 1, 1989. The Plains of 9-11 Unlike those researchers and writers who say they have moved beyond 9-11, I have persevered in my efforts to solve this heinous crime. How can one abandon the pursuit of the truth about 9-11 before the crime has been solved? During the decade after the terrorist attacks in which some 3,000 innocent people died, the federal judge who presided over the 9-11 tort litigation waged a judicial war of attrition against the families of the victims to prevent their cases from ever going to trial. In the end, every one of the 9-11 families was forced into an out-of-court settlement. The 96 families that refused the government compensation money and held out for years to have a trial to find the truth never got their day in court. How can Americans tolerate such injustice? How can we forget the thousands of people who died on 9-11? How can we ignore the death and destruction that has, as a result, been wrongfully inflicted on the innocent people of Iraq, Afghanistan, Lebanon, and Palestine? Who can accept corrupt and irresponsible administrations dragging our military from one illegal war to another in the utterly fraudulent War on Terror, which the Bush administration promised will last for generations? If we, as Americans, don't demand the truth about 9-11, who and what do we really stand for? The policies of the Bush and Obama administrations were based on an unproven interpretation of the events of 9-11. What does it mean to be a citizen of the land of the free and the home of the brave if we allow our minds and our nation to be so easily hijacked by government lies and propaganda? After being attacked by undercover police at my home, In August 2006, and maliciously prosecuted in a seriously flawed trial, I increased my efforts to solve 9-11. As the cover-up became more obvious and the guilty parties revealed themselves, it made sense to intensify the pressure, not give up. The Fraudulent War on Terror I cannot accept mass murder, occupation, and genocidal wars of aggression. Nor can I accept the corruption of our values and destruction of our basic American rights to facilitate the massive fraud known as the War on Terror. With the passage of time, it has become quite clear that 9-11 was carried out to kickstart the global War on Terror with its pre-planned wars of aggression. In December 2001, veteran German intelligence professionals told me that 9-11 had been executed by a state-sponsored criminal network and had required years of planning. Eckhart Vertebach, the former president of Germany's domestic intelligence service, the Verfassungsschutz, told me in 2001 that the deathly precision and the magnitude of planning of the 9-11 attacks would have required years of planning. Such a sophisticated operation, Werthebach said, would require the fixed frame of a state intelligence organization, something not found in a loose group like the one allegedly led by Mohammed Atta while he studied in Hamburg. If fair box analysis is correct, and I have every reason to believe it is, the official version is nothing but a pack of lies. This would mean that the members of the criminal network are still occupying the highest positions of power in the United States, Israel, and other nations. The members of this network are dedicated to preventing the evidence from being released because it would expose the real perpetrators. This is the only logical reason why the 9-11 evidence has been suppressed, the investigation controlled, and the litigation and discovery processes obstructed. At this point, It should be clear that 9-11 will never be solved by the federal government, politically appointed investigators, law enforcement agencies, or the corrupt courts. These controlled agencies, like the Zionist controlled media, are only interested in controlling the information and preventing the real truth from being revealed. This crime will only be solved by concerned and dedicated independent researchers. The Zionist strategy. 9/11 was a very sophisticated operation, as Vertebach said, which required the fixed frame of a state intelligence organization. It was carefully planned years in advance and carried out for one strategic purpose: to kickstart the Zionist-planned war on terror. The rabid Zionist neocons who dominated the Bush administration pushed the war on terror with its criminal wars of aggression, occupation, and balkanization in the Middle East as the strategic response to 9-11. Likewise, the Zionist media moguls, who dominate the U.S. mass media, promoted the war on terror as the suitable and proper response to the terror atrocity, a crime of mass murder which they refused to investigate. An Israeli official named Oded Yinon revealed the Zionist strategy to balkanize the entire Middle East into ethnic mini-states in the early 1980s. The plan for a global war on terror to accomplish this goal has been articulated since the mid-1980s by Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister of the extreme right-wing Likud Party. The Israeli military's plans to realize these strategic goals were evidently in the works for at least 20 years before 9-11. The hoax of 9-11. 9-11 is, in fact, a gigantic hoax. Only by exposing the terrorist masterminds behind 9-11 will we reveal the criminals behind the fraudulent War on Terror and the epidemic of false flag terrorism that plagues the world. False flag terrorism is a crime designed and committed with the intention that the blame will fall on a targeted faction, state, or organization. The media outlets which the criminals control facilitate the blame game by promoting the false version and stifling any independent investigation or truthful analysis of the crime. After all, 9-11 remains an unsolved crime. It is, however, rather obvious who is responsible for blocking discovery and obstructing justice for the victims and their relatives. At every critical point where the events and circumstances of 9-11 should have been investigated and discussed, there has been a Zionist, a dedicated devotee of the State of Israel, occupying a key position and acting as the controller and censor of evidence, the gatekeeper of information. I have seen this pattern in earlier cover-ups. The same pattern was used with the sinking of Estonia, in the Baltic Sea in 1994 and the US government's NTSB investigation of the downing of TWA Flight 800, two of the most egregious examples of government cover-ups in modern times. In each case, the three critical phases of the cover-up, investigation and access to to the evidence, media interpretation of the event, and related litigation were all tightly controlled to prevent any meaningful discovery of what had really caused the disaster. The people who are preventing the discovery of the facts in such cases are actually complicit in covering up crimes of mass murder. Logically, there can be no reason for dedicated Zionists to obstruct the investigation of 9-11 other than to conceal the evidence of Israeli and Zionist involvement in the crimes. The FBI, for example, under the command of the Israeli dual national Michael Shertoff, was responsible for the confiscation and destruction of the crucial evidence from 9-11. Shertoff, as Assistant Attorney General of the Criminal Division of the Department of Justice, oversaw the non-investigation of 9-11, which resulted in the massive destruction of the steel, crucial evidence from the World Trade Center. Sheratov went on to head the Department of Homeland Security, where he continued to control access to the evidence through the Sensitive Security Information (SSI) program. The confiscated evidence includes videotapes of the Pentagon attack and physical pieces from what different aircraft were involved. This evidence is critical to prove what happened and identify the aircraft involved in the attacks. But the FBI has refused to release this evidence. Neither President George W. Bush nor the U.S. Congress demanded that they do so. Under President Barack Obama, the 9-11 cover-up was perpetuated and the war effort in Afghanistan increased. The destruction of the crucial evidence from 9-11 and the lack of a real investigation reveal the culture of corruption that prevails in Washington. The appointed federal judges Alvin K. Hellerstein and Michael B. Mukasey and the former Assistant Attorney General Michael Shertoff did not confiscate and destroy the critical evidence and block discovery in order to protect fanatical Arab Muslims or conspiratorial Jesuits. These men are all dedicated Zionists, and their efforts were exerted to protect Israel, the foreign state to which they are wholeheartedly devoted. U.S. District Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein managed the 9-11 tort litigation in which not one single wrongful death case went to trial. Judge Hellerstein has close family ties to Israel and the Israeli airport security company ICTS, a key defendant in the tort litigation. The Zionist role in 9-11 cover-up is obvious. The players who are involved in obstructing justice are known. Patriotic Americans must not abandon the pursuit of the truth. For those who died on 9-11, for our nation and our posterity, we are obliged to find and expose those who are responsible for the crimes and cover-up of 9-11. The Evidence of Israeli Involvement I have pursued the leads of Israeli involvement simply because the evidence indicates that the Israeli military and intelligence had prior knowledge and involvement in 9-11. The five jubilant Israeli Mossad agents who were caught celebrating and filming themselves in front of the destruction of the World Trade Center and their subsequent public statements clearly indicate that the Mossad had prior knowledge of 9-11. The text message warnings of the attacks sent over the israeli-owned odigo instant messaging system several hours prior to the attacks are further evidence of israeli prior knowledge furthermore the israelis have a long history of committing false flag terror attacks particularly against american targets the israeli attack on the uss liberty in 1967 and the israeli terrorist bombings of us and british civilian targets in egypt during the 1954 Lavon Affair, are the first that come to mind. If the evidence indicated that Saudis, Pakistanis, or even Jesuits were behind the attacks, I would investigate them. The evidence, however, points to Israelis being involved, so I look there. There has been no independent investigation of 9-11 done by the controlled media other than Carl Cameron's now deeply buried four-part series on Fox News in December 2001. Think about this for a minute. The mass media in the land of the free press has not done any independent investigation about the crime of the century. The evidence of Israeli involvement in 9-11 is so obvious that senior editors in the controlled media don't even let their journalists approach the subject. The journalists of the free press in the United States are confined to the same Auschwitz of the mind as the American public they write for. This is a self-imposed limit on what they allow themselves to think or express, in particular about Israel because of the Jewish suffering of World War II. Journalists know very well that to touch the subject of Israeli involvement in 9-11 would be like touching a live wire. Likewise, when it comes to tracking the Israeli criminal network that has operated in the United States for decades, The U.S. media is a dog that won't bark or hunt. The extent of Zionist control over the U.S. mass media, including the Internet, is astounding. The mass media has effectively prevented most Americans from understanding who is really behind the false flag terror attacks of 9-11, and by extension, the illegal and genocidal wars in Afghanistan, Palestine, Lebanon, and Iraq the controlled media has also left Americans with an extremely distorted view of the Middle East, Zionism, and the history of the Zionist state, Israel. Israel, a terrorist state. Israel is a nation that was founded by terrorists, ruthless men with histories of committing genocidal crimes and false flag terror attacks. Israel was created in 1948 in Palestine, on land that was ethnically cleansed of its indigenous Christian and Muslim inhabitants. Ariel Sharon, the former prime minister who has been in a coma since January 4, 2006, is a prime example of an Israeli terrorist. Sharon came to power in early 2001, about the same time as George W. Bush, some eight months before 9-11. Sharon is a well-known terrorist and genocidaire. That is a person who has been involved in genocide. Sharon has supervised numerous terrorist atrocities, such as the 1982 massacre in Sabra and Shatila refugee camps, in which thousands of innocent people were massacred. Sharon is a Zionist extremist who believes that every Jew should live in Israeli-occupied Palestine. Realistically, what else besides terrorism and bloodshed should one expect from such fanatical and genocidal terrorists. The sons and daughters of the original Zionist terrorists have occupied the highest positions of power in the Israeli government. Tzipora Malka, Tzipi Livni, for example, the foreign minister from 2006 to 2009, is the daughter of the former terror chief of the Irgun. Born in Tel Aviv in July 1958, Tzipi is the daughter of Eitan Livni, born Yerucham Bzozovich in Grodno, 1919, a Polish-born Irgun terrorist associated with the bombing of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. Stephen Erlanger of the New York Times wrote an article about Livni entitled Israel's Top Envoy on February 5, 2006. Quote, Tzipi Livni, 47, is the first woman to serve as Israel's foreign minister since Golda Meir. Some think she may be the first since Mrs. Meir to be prime minister. She is also a deeply Israeli figure, the daughter of Zionist guerrillas, terrorists in some eyes, who met in the Irgun, the underground organization that fought the British and the Arabs, and that blew up the British headquarters in the King David Hotel in 1946, killing 91 people. Her father, Aton Livni, was the head of operations for the Irgun terrorists, and on his gravestone is the map of Greater Israel, extending over both sides of the Jordan River. Erlanger suggests that blowing up a hotel and killing 91 people is only seen as a terrorist act in some eyes. Israeli False Flag Terrorism The fact that the Israeli political leadership and military command decided to launch a vicious attack on a defenseless U.S. reconnaissance ship, the USS Liberty, off the coast of Gaza in June 1967 and kill every man on board illustrates that the Israelis are fully capable of committing such atrocities in their attempts to blame their enemies and achieve their strategic goals. Dedicated Zionists will defend these acts of Israeli false-flag terrorism as the pragmatic thing to do, and attack those who disagree as being anti-Semitic. The Zionist-controlled media adamantly refused to conduct its own investigation of 9-11, the seminal event of the war on terror. Controlled news outlets, like the New York Times, promoted the pre-planned wars of aggression against Afghanistan and Iraq with propaganda pieces and false reports about weapons of mass destruction, such as those provided by Judith Miller. Miller is the daughter of William Miller, a Jewish immigrant from Pinsk, Russia.